So welcome. How's it going? I know you're muted. Okay. Um, well, if you've done the math on the three characteristics, you know what I'm talk talking about today, yeah. Um, so sometimes when um, people hear me teach, they're like, um, uh, are you okay? You know, are you, keep your head up, Matthew. Things will turn around for you. And um, why do they think that? They probably think that because I love talking about Dukkha. And um, why do I love talking about Dukkha? Because um, comprehending Dukkha frees us up from dukkha. Um, this dharma path that we're, we're trying to fill out, it, it takes a while to actually, more than one retreat for sure, more than one dharma talk, absolutely, to fill out the kind of grandeur of the Buddha's vision is um, so much nuance to it, so much beauty. And uh, it's usually the framed in the negative, meaning the Buddha um, spoke much more about what is left behind than what is left in the wake of letting go. The Buddha spoke much more about um, the obstacles to happiness, to well-being, rather than what it looks like to be free. And so enlightenment itself is often defined as the absence of greed, hate, and delusion. And uh, it's a process of letting go. And... Um, with these three characteristics, dukkha, anicca, anatta, um, they too are, are call forth a kind of the energy, the renunciation, the patience of letting go. And in a way, before they are actually liberating, we really grieve the three characteristics, you know. Um, our heart has to acclimatize to what the Buddha is offering. And so to really open to the truth of dukkha, um, to changingness, to unreliability, 
to the centerlessness of existence. This entails some measure of grief, I feel. And at some point, uh, also profound relief, but at least some grief first, and then maybe more grief as we keep cycling down into the depths of the Buddha's offering. Yeah, these kind of rhythms of taking this in more and more deeply. Our habit, the habit energies of our mind um, as as uh, has been described, the habit energies is really to postulate something like the opposite of the three characteristics, like the default assumption of how life is, how life should be. We fantasize about uh, a durable pleasure that might structure our lives, that might satiate our heart. We fervently hope to tie up all the loose ends of being human and hold the world still, you know, that kind of organizing fantasy of like holding the world still to game out samsara, to manage uncertainty, to live forever. And we fantasize about, excuse me, about taking refuge in an identity of arriving and landing and being someone. And so today the uh, topic is this third characteristic mark of existence, this third mode of perception, anatta, um, not self, and what um, what's left in the wake of this letting go. In other words, how this uh, release frees us up for many many species of goodness, of joy, of connection. And so we're looking at how do we represent, represent ourself as a character across time? And how do we represent ourselves in a moment? How do we draw and narrate ourselves? Very subtly, but we are drawing and narrating ourselves much of the time. We are creating models the Matthew within Matthew. Yeah. How do I draw a model of Matthew for awareness? 
when I close my eyes, there is a kind of sense of some kind of outline, the sketch of me, the story of me. So we look, how do we tell our tales? How do we draw ourselves? How do we turn ourselves into nouns? And how much dukkha is generated in this process? Enough to totally break your heart open. Now, I'm I'm aware that um, that this topic, uh, for those who did the math, and yeah, today is anatta, that comes with a certain measure of dread for at least some meditators, um, because the topic of uh, this not-self when we hear it, um, it can be confusing. It can lead us into bewilderment. It can actually, to hear this teaching can, on not self, can cause a spasm of self. Yeah. Wait, this is the thing I don't get. This is the, I get the first two, but what is going on here? Yeah. And so... Um, we hold it lightly, yeah. We just take in whatever is useful. I think part of the part of the confusion may be in how we talk about it, how teachers, we teachers, um, talk about it, the language that we use, and sometimes it seems to me like. Um, not-self isn't uh, ideal, maybe. Um, I was trying to consider alternatives and maybe something like um, no center might be a little better. Not sure, though. This is confusing territory. Um, our, our thoughts about this teaching on anatta um, yeah, our kind of aspirations in practice are so often imaginations of the self getting better, the self. Being uh, better accessorized or something. And, um, and the ego Ego um, also recrystallizes around anything, even genuine understanding, you know? So we see something and then the ego sort of like, uh, like an amoeba swallowing some particle or something. It's like, um, I, I have literally caught myself bragging about how well I understand anatta. 
that is messed up. Yeah. But this is the kind of insidious, relentless quality of drawing and narrating self just uh, crystallizing around everything, tolerating no goodness outside itself. But the self, the self is, um, is like uh, the, the project that never gets completed, you know. We never finish it and it never offers a place for us to abide. It's never, uh, it never functions as a place to rest. Now, we're not trying to get philosophical about this. I, um, yeah, I really, this is not, it gets, it can get heady, but it's not meant to be that. This topic is not meant to be that. Um, it's, um, uh, this is not about taking up some new view of the self. Yeah. The, we avoid this, a, a position, a position is something that the Tagata has done away with. Yeah. The Buddha speaking about um, himself in the first person and the position is something that Tathagata has done away with. So we're not replacing the old view of self with some new view of no self. Anatta is right here, obscured by clinging and hard to believe, but it's so. The Tibetan tradition says, look, look for yourself. And in the not finding, there is a finding. And may, maybe you know the experience that happens uh, typically with those we know best, love most. And over the years, we become so so familiar with them, at some point we kind of stop really looking at them. They become so encrusted in our own concepts in the layer after layer, so many pairs of glasses on, and we turn them very much into a noun, and sometimes I find uh, with very close people, it's like I'm trying to connect, but the concepts feel so thick, so multi-layered. And the sacrifice is in intimacy and spontaneity. And then sometimes, sometimes maybe after years, maybe after decades, we might really, really look at them. And who, who are you really? Yeah. 
And so just as we kind of do shorthand, just as we freeze the being of another into a thing, an essence, there's someone we do that even more so with. Ourself. Now, it's important to say that there, there is no tension between anatta and a warm, gentle, loving, tender relationship with oneself. Um, so we should clarify what, what is being negated in the not of not-self. Uh, we are not erasing the complexity of our psychological conditioning. We're not erasing the reality that identity and how one is perceived exerts historically powerful effects. So identity may be empty for the Buddha, but it's definitely not empty for the racist. And we're not misusing uh, anatta, this teaching to deny or bypass um, our own needs or dependency. This is not some kind of declaration of, uh, of um, independence. And we're not going hunting for something inside of ourself that needs to be vanquished for us to be free. We're not going hunting for the ego. That's just more duality and separation and friction. Maybe we say self is an experience and not self is an experience. It's all experience. And experiences don't contradict each other. They're just different experiences. So I, I prefer to think of it as a, a, understand this as a kind of continuum of the density of self. On the far end, there's self-aggrandizement and self-hatred. Sometimes two sides of the same coin. It's very fragile. You know, like arrogance, neither arrogance or nor self-hatred um, really sustain any kind of deep investigation. This is a very rigidified, very noun-like way of conceiving of ourselves. And as we move out of some of that harshness and out of that arrogance, to love oneself is not to cherish or elevate the self, but to deeply accept ourselves, to honor our conditioning, 
to be moved by our conditioning, for our hearts to be moved by it. So in other words, self-love is an expression of non-clinging, not self-cherishing. Yeah. It's not like we're clinging in self-love. We're not clinging tightly to some super positive view of Matthew. It's a much more kind of easy, relaxed acceptance. And in a way, we have to love all the selves that brought us to this moment. Um, the self, the self that is loved is easier to release or forget. He is Dogen's language. The self that is loved is easier to release or forget than the self that is hated. Self-hatred is a kind of pooling of energy, a coagulation, um, a preoccupation, a way we misconstrue our own fallibility and imperfection. And the self-hatred, it just um, makes it scarier to surrender to stillness and silence. Feels uh, less safe to let go into the dark, wondrous, Silence. And so we uh, cultivate self-love. We begin to like accept, accept, uh, honor our conditioning with intelligence. And um, this moves us along the kind of continuum from self-hatred or arrogance to self-acceptance and self-love. And that's moving us in the direction of anatta. So the not and not self, what, what is being referred to roughly it's, um, um, Sakya Ditti self view and, and a subtler kind of um, conceit, uh, a sense of, of uh, experience um, refers back to our own being, a sense of, of our experience as sandwiched in time between past and future. So we look and we find when we look that even the well-adjusted self carries a burden of dukkha. Yeah. We, we can't 
find the satisfaction, we cannot find the sense of refuge in ideas of the self and drawing ourself in a particular way, in narrating ourselves in a particular way. There's always some alienation there. It's not a place to abide. And we see, we see how much of, um, how much energy is pooled up in this self creation, this self uh, narration, this self sketch that we do. So much of papancha is really accessorizing the self. The papancha mental proliferation. So much of what we remember, of what leaves a kind of trace in the heart mind, are those experiences where the, the ego is stimulated in some way. That's what leaves the trace, yeah, the trace of memory. Uh, is a kind of incomplete cycle of the ego being stimulated but not discharged in some way. And although we may not think about ourselves as very moralistic, we often have very rigid ideas about who we are, who we're not. We're very moralistic about you know, almost like grade school level moral reasoning of good, bad, right, wrong, evil, this, you know, like about ourselves, the pros and cons of Matthew and taking that really seriously, really contracting around that list of pros, that list of cons. And so we keep struggling to draw and redraw the self, to narrate and re-narrate the self. And we stand guard, we stand guard at the gates of self. And there are honored guests and there are intruders. And we bring all our vigilance, yeah? to monitoring and patrolling. Yeah. What are you? Guest? Intruder? The ego becomes like a reference point for our movement through the world. It's a very, very fragile way to move through the world. One uh, psychologist, Buddhist teacher, Fulton, Paul Fulton, said, um, self-esteem is in constant renegotiation, never a truly finished product immune from fluctuation. Uh, Have that sense. Oh, yeah, self-esteem is... um, is always in fluctuation. It needs our protection. 
We need to stand guard at the gates of self. We live by the ego and we die by the ego. And so part of what we do in our practice is we are learning to drain the charge from every egoic definition. All the ways we draw and narrate. It's not to say it's all wrong. It's to say like we want to look at the emotional affective investment in this or that definition, this or that way we draw the self. And we we drain the charge from that. Yeah, we start to really notice all the the kind of way we manicure ourselves, the self-curation ideas about what makes me precious or what is worthy of my shame. And um, yeah, this grandiosity, this shame, these are just really the underbelly of the self, the fragile, hypersensitive underbelly of the self. very fertile ground for the arising of dukkha. And so we develop equanimity, we develop clarity, mindfulness, we tolerate not clinging to ideas of self. Okay, here I am. I want to draw this about me. I want to tell that tale about me. I can feel the the bodily momentum, the energy that wants to draw this way, not that way, to tell this story, not that story. And if I don't draw, if I put the pen down, if I put the sketch pad down, I'm left with feeling. Can I open my heart fully to that? There's a subtler sense of self that's forged. Um, And this is, um, yeah, this is a sense of, of the kind of subtle perception of the center point of our being, the sense of what is it that creates the sense of a kind of the Matthew within Matthew? How, where does the self, where, what is the reference point that receives all this sensory information, these sights, these sounds, these sensations, these thoughts, it feels like it all culminates somewhere. It all points back to something. 
and that sense of I I amness arises out of a certain kind of unconsciousness, a subtle kind of unconsciousness. But um, we investigate this. So philosopher Dennett said, um, described just as in physics, like there's a center of gravity of an object, not a thing. A center of gravity of an object is not an atom or subatomic particle. It's a kind of theorist fiction, Dennett says. And then goes on to say that the self is the center of narrative gravity. I I often emphasize that phrase, the self as the center of narrative gravity. So says, uh, our tales are spun, but for the most part, we don't spin them, they spin us. Yeah. So that that sense of the, the convergence point of our being, yeah. Um, we notice that which creates the ground is just another empty, unsatisfying, impermanent, foundationless experience. The clinging um, makes experience feel more dense and the letting go that tends more towards the wind. Yeah, we start to feel more like the wind. Now, normally we think about the self as the cause of things, but in a way the Buddha implied the self is an effect more than a cause. An effect of what? Something like fear. The self as an effect of fear. Like what happens when nothing is setting off even the quietest alarm bell inside you when there are no problems? When there are no problems, there's no need to perceive, no need for a view. There's no need to fixate a self. In a sense, we, we are orchestrating our survival by hallucinating a self. And so we feel safe in meditation, and then we hear a loud noise. We feel safe, and we feel more porous, a little more vague, a little bit more like mist, condensed. And then something scares us. We hear a loud noise, and we get uh, chased back into the corner of self self becomes denser 
And then we reestablish some sense of uh, letting go of inner safety of anicca. We start to feel the pull of anicca. At first, anicca is a heartbreak. And then it's a doorway. And impermanence, Anicca has a kind of undertow and it wants to pull you and all your drawings and all your stories into its current. No nouns to be found anywhere. No longer really attending to discrete objects. It's more that the field of awareness becomes potentized, just vibratory, energetic. The object, the object is not the breath or the body. The object is the field of awareness. And there's no no center and no periphery, uh, no real here, there, self, other, but there is uh, knowing. Uh, it is, as one philosopher described, unpartitioned epistemic space. Unpartitioned, un, not divided epistemic knowing. And this heals a profound alienation in our hearts. Because the self pulled us out of the flow of Anicca, it gave us a, a kind of God's eye view It's not that, but it makes us feel outside of life. And then we rejoin life. We rejoin, we know ourselves again as nature. And every drawing and story, every self-conception It's not so much we're debating the truth or falsity. It's just they all feel a million miles away, utterly irrelevant to the project of living and the exquisiteness of the moment. And so the center is empty, but the heart is full. And this frees us up in so many ways, so many ways. The self is bound up with with measurement and measurement, measurement is dukkha. The self is a kind of contraction, cramped and divided, partitioned. And so we get some space to breathe and we're no longer trying to prove something to ourselves 
or to others. We're no longer trying to perform the self, which is so exhausting. We're not trying to achieve a new identity. Yeah, we know that there's no rest there. Yeah, I'm not trying to become, I'm not trying to become some whatever other Buddhist teacher. I'm not trying to become that because there's no rest there. And our failures, you know, our failures, they don't mean the same thing anymore. They just don't. Like this, this uh, insight, this set of insights frees us up to laugh at our foibles and our limits. And yeah, the, the quote failures, like, I, it's so, uh, it actually gives me a measure of delight to like realize how many things I'm not good at, you know? I'm good at like three things and bad at three million. And I find that deeply funny. <laughs> Yeah. It frees us up to delight in the excellence of others, to bow at their feet, because there's just so much mudita, so much sympathetic joy. Because envy, envy too, is the underbelly of self. Envy almost always implies a self-congealing. You mean something about the way I'm representing myself to myself. And so we step out of the, the comparing mind, yeah? better than, worse than, equal to. And when we step out of that, there's just mudita, compassion left. There's a, a whole field of intimacy that, that opens up. It's like um, Ego, ego to ego contact is um, is unsatisfying. It's like trying to live, subsist on a diet of cotton candy, you know. Or I think about how like two young kids might play battle with the superhero figurines, you know. I'm Wonder Woman. You're Spider-Man. And then they kind of like play, yeah? We stop playing with others like that, yeah? And that opens us up for the possibility of a deeper heart connection, of really, really 
without self-referencing, without concern for this curation of the self, we can enter into a deeper relationship, sometimes disappearing into the other. And this teaching undercuts the undercuts hatred. It just becomes less and less tenable uh, because hatred, hatred always essentializes the other. It always makes something the center of their being. And so part of this teaching on anatta, we become more sophisticated about causality. We start to shed the monocausal models, one cause. And we start to fill out a vision of another human being where they too uh, are centerless. In other words, anatta opens a million doors for love. Yeah. Philosopher Derek Parfit. It is difficult to believe that there is no such thing as an all or nothing self, no deep further fact beyond the multitude of small psychological facts that make you who you are. When I believed my existence was such a further fact, I seemed imprisoned in myself. My life seemed like a glass tunnel through which I was moving faster every year, and at the end of which there was darkness. When I changed my view, the walls of my glass tunnel disappeared. I now live in the open air, there's still a difference between my life and the lives of other people, but the difference is less. Other people are closer. I am less concerned about the rest of my life and more concerned about the lives of others. Just sit for a moment.
So I um, offer those words with the hope that um, uh, some of them, a couple of them, are of some use. And um, yeah, please um, pick up, pick up what is useful. Yeah, apply it, investigate, and um, leave leave the rest behind. Yeah, it's nice to be um, with you, uh, considering these things together. <laughs>